0: I used to use Macromedia's uh, Fireworks, or Firework, whatever it was called. That was their vector-based graphic editing suite. Um, So I'd use that in tandem with Dreamweaver, if you remember that. That was their website-building software, and Macromedia's Flash to build animations and games.
1: My God, you were the coolest kid on your MySpace, weren't you?
0: I... Definitely. You were was. actually
1: in your own top eight.
0: <laughs> we might be going pre-Facebook here or MySpace. This might even be Friendster territory we're getting into. So I apologize. Whoa. But, uh, yeah, so there was definitely a period in time when I was doing website design poorly and writing action script in Flash to do media players and stuff like that. This was, you know, before... Kind of before MySpace let you just host your band site on MySpace. Yeah. So, you know, I was friends with a lot of bands and record labels that wanted to have a web presence and, you know, I could work with some graphic designers and we could slap something together and get a website up. And then enrolled MySpace with, you know, the ability to customize the site by hacking their CSS to make it as <laughs> ugly as humanly possible. As is tradition on MySpace. <laughs> And uh, I think it's funny that MySpace eventually became essentially a music site at a certain point before it completely slid off the cliff into oblivion. I've been told by reliable, well, nobody, that (laughs) MySpace
1: actually still exists.
0: I believe you, but I'm definitely not going to check through a browser because I feel (laughs) like I would immediately get bombarded with ads for... Uh, cryptocurrency, which is germane to the conversation today. <laughs> well done, sir. Well Thanks. done. Thanks. really, really, just tied it all together with a with a big old bow for you. Tied the sad room together. Oh, it is. Like I feel like I need a stiff drink, to 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 wade through all this and a lot of hand sanitizer. <laughs> <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere. And that's true, isn't that? Is there, there's uh, What is the history of that? It's 5 o'clock somewhere. I feel like I talked to someone about that, and the history of it was actually fairly interesting. Probably more interesting than anything we're going to talk about today. That would track. That would definitely be on brand. <laughs> well, um, uh, let's get started. Hello, legit human. Welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I am a real human person. Deep down in my uh, completely organic blood pump, I feel longing, ennui, and a voracious desire for human flesh. I mean, I mean, love. Yes, love. I desire love and not the delicious calories stored in my co-host. With me is Chris, who I love and do not want to consume. Howdy, lunch. I mean, Chris. The most... Disturbing
1: part about all this, and there are many, is that we all know you don't actually need calories. So you really go in for the fake cannibalism just for like the groupies.
0: It's not the groupies, it's the sensation. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. This is totally normal stuff, human stuff. I so. Uh, in some movies, you'll hear someone say something stupid like, you know, humans are the only ones that kill for sport, which is 100 percent not true. If you absolutely ever cat not movie. at all factual. No, no. It's one of those things that gets bandied about. Like, we only use 10 percent of our brain. And right. it's like, yeah, also not true. And I'm pretty sure that little kid in Jerry Maguire was also lying about the human head. <laughs> little bastard. That the fact that it does not, in fact, weigh eight pounds. It does not. Wasn't that Haley Joel Osman too? I believe it was. Oh, wow. He was wow. all the rage for a number of uncomfortable years. I feel like he got his comeuppance for his lies and slander about the human head. So he really had it coming, going hard against Haley Joel Os- Oh, God, I can't. All right. Let's talk about some tech garbage. Do it. All right. Bear with me here. Chris. Chris, are you sitting down? Well, stand up. You need to stay Um, awake and alert. This is important. I saw the phrase Web3 and I immediately fell asleep in my chair. So (laughs) you're going to have to do a lot of work here. Okay. There's going to be dancing, fireworks. There might be some trained bears. We'll see what happens. Okay. So we're going to talk about something that's tangentially aligned with Web3. It's not cryptocurrency. So I feel like that's a good start. Yeah. Yeah, I've opened one eye. Okay. There might be some blockchain. And there it goes closed again. But that's more of an implementation detail and not the main portion of the topic. Okay. Okay. What we're going to talk about, I hinted at last week, or outright said, (laughs) you know, one of the two, uh, is decentralized identities. And the reason we're going to talk about it is the W3C recently ratified a decentralized identifier standard and that's the a mouthful right decentralized identifier so they call it a did even though those aren't the actual initials it would be just di d d which actually d. considering web3 feels appropriate <laughs> it probably does. really we didn't even brain. finish the acronym oh we moved on to the next thing Uh, the next Ponzi scheme. I mean, totally legitimate business operation that we're running here. Anyway, um, so DID can be a little confusing to those of us who worked on telecom systems for any amount of time, because DID also stands for direct inward dialing, also known as how you give someone a public-facing telephone number when they're on a private PBX. (sighs) Those are simpler times. Thinking about the days when I was punching down RJ11 jacks in cubicles after hours, eating an Uncrustable that I heated up in a toaster oven. It's good times, Chris. Oh, my God. Look at this Coastal Elite heating up his Uncrustables. <laughs> They're actually... Do- okay, I mean, not everybody likes a toasted peanut butter and jelly, but I do. So, suck it. Is I guess is what I'm saying. Um. Anyway. We're not talking about those DIDs. We're talking about DIDs, the new ones.
1: Perfectly uh, clear. I have no questions <laughs> at
0: all. Excellent. The decentralized identifier, what it's meant to be is a form of digital identity, and it could refer to anything physical or digital in nature, though I think it's probably going to be most useful for digital objects, as most of these technologies are. Right. Right. Now, an identifier, that's not all that exciting, but it's the decentralized nature of the identifier and the standard that is actually interesting. Because if you think about most forms of identity that you use today, they're all highly centralized. For instance, your passport. That's a government-issued physical object that represents an identity that is centrally managed by the Department of State, in this case. Your driver's license, same deal, except now it's the DMV that's owning that record poorly, probably. The other form of identity that you commonly find in IT is what's called a federated identity. And this establishes a trust between two or more systems and creates a mapping from the identity provider to the system that needs to use the identity. So think of something like single sign-on where Active Directory is that source of identity and other applications are leveraging that for authentication but they still have an entry in their own system that maps to that other identity.
1: And you still have a single source of truth. It's just a matter of these other systems are calling back to an agreed upon single source of truth and going,
0: is this guy good? Yep. That's I mean, but then within the actual application, you might set permissions that are specific to that person in that application. So I think we kind of get the idea here for federated identities now, DIDs defer in that they have been, quote, and this is coming from the actual standard, they have been designed so that they may be decoupled from centralized registries, identity providers, and certificate authorities, end quote. Now, that, that begs a few questions. Who manages a DID? Where is it stored? And what the hell is it? <laughs> so... I'm going to try to explore some of these. I think in some cases, an audio medium might not be the best because there are some good diagrams. So, uh, you know, in the show notes are included links to the actual standard, which has diagrams that try to clear some of this up. But let's start with the absolute basics here. A DID is by itself a globally unique and persistent identifier that does not require a central registration authority. So I just used a bunch of words that probably don't mean anything yet, but we're going to get there. Don't worry. They also sound like they contradict each other, but carry on. The simplest comparison is a DNS record. So a DNS record is added to a zone file, and that zone file is hosted by name servers that are authoritative for that domain. When you look up a DNS entry, it will trace back to those name servers... The name servers in turn are recorded by the domain registrar, which gets its authority from ICANN. Now, since a DID doesn't uh, require a central registration authority, unlike DNS, it needs a way to be stored and validated. The typical mechanism to store DIDs is a distributed ledger. Also known as a blockchain, so I, I I told you it was going to be in there, but it's really not important because that's a uh, that's an implementation detail. It doesn't have to be a blockchain. So I told you this was Web three adjacent. Now,
1: so the concept here is the blockchain effectively replaces ICAN, but the black blockchain by nature is decentralized enough that it's not a central
0: governing body like ICANN is. Right. And we'll put to the side all the concerns about blockchain and ways to game the blockchain system because there are ways that have been shown and proven to work, especially if you have a majority stake or a majority of uh, work or nodes in the network. You can force things, but that's a whole other conversation that we don't need to have. The DID itself, the actual DID, so if we're just getting down to what is it, it is a simple text string and it's composed of three sections separated by colons the first is just the letters did which says this string is a did hooray kind of like how a web address starts with http or ftp or it could be a uri to let people know it's a uniform resource indicator this is or identifier this is the same sort of thing it this is a decentralized identifier did Tells them that then after the colon is going to be a DID method and that method is the way in which that you resolve this DID to a document that gives you more information. And then after the third, after the second colon is the actual DID method specific identifier. So all this put together forms this unique string that should be globally unique. And unchangeable. If you change it, then it's no longer referring to that DID. Now, the method and the method specific identifier are used to resolve to a DID document, and that DID document contains a bunch more information about the DID, including the subject and the authentication methods supported by that DID. Okay. So, hopefully my that's favorite clear. part
1: about this so far is that you also didn't include any diagrams in the show notes that I'm reading, so I'm just as lost as everyone else.
0: Excellent. <laughs> so, just like DNS, just having a DNS record by itself, not even the record, just having a DNS address by itself is not particularly useful. You need to resolve that record or that entry to a record that gives you information, like you know, resolving a website to an IP address. So you can actually contact that server. So just like DNS, DID needs to be resolved to a DID document. And that's the job of, wait for it, DID resolvers. So at least they didn't try to get like stupid with naming. It resolves DIDs, it's called a resolver. All right. The resolver- I accept. Yeah, the resolvers simply take DID as input, like you would send a DNS query and they do some magic and produce the DID document as output. The magic that I referred to, that's the DID method. And the DID method defines how a DID is created, resolved, updated, and deactivated. So you remember that the DID itself, that middle part is the DID method, That is embedded in the DID string. So that tells anybody who's trying to resolve it, here's the method that is supported by this particular DID. Okay, so we have the DID, a way to get a more informative document that outlines authentication methods and properties about the DID, including what it actually refers to. Who can make changes to that DID? Who who controls it? Well, that's the job of, and wait for it, DID controllers. (laughs) So this would be the equivalent of someone who has permissions to make changes to your DNS zone file. A controller has permissions to make changes to the DID document. And just like you can delegate portions of a zone to someone else, you can delegate portions of the DID document to Another controller and let it make some changes but not all the changes so you can delegate out some portion of that management okay so the next thing is the DID subject and this is the thing that is being identified by the DID you dear listener out there you could have a DID refer to you the human and that would make you the subject You could also have it reference a bank account, an IOT device, a blog post, an MP3 file, whatever the hell you wanted to reference. (laughs) You can have it reference. That's the subject. Now, the DID document has more than just a subject. It also contains cryptographic information that the DID subject can use to authenticate itself and prove its association with a DID. That is kind of the equivalent of signing a DNS record with your private key to prove ownership. And then anybody else can check on that by using the public key to check the hash on it. So,
1: whatever exists in the world that you want to identify becomes a DID subject. Correct. Does that mean that that thing can have more than one DID subject out in the world? It could, in theory, yes.
0: On different is that systems.
1: Some, is that something that we're trying to avoid, or does the
0: protocol not really care one way or the other? Well, let's say we're using this for a person. You might want to generate multiple DIDs for yourself in reference to different systems.
1: Right, just like I have my real passport and the one I got from 7-Eleven.
0: Wait, did I say that out loud? Uh, Whoa, whoa. (laughs) kind of like you have your fake driver's license to convince everybody that you're still under 30. (laughs) ouch. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay. So we've, we've covered a lot of ground so far, just, just a little bit more. And that's the final piece of the puzzle is where the hell do you store all this stuff? So DID documents and DIDs are stored in a verifiable data registry, which could be a database, could be a distributed ledger, like a blockchain. It could even be a simple file system. That's an implementation detail for whoever is managing this particular DID. So I think I've answered the initial questions that were posed. A DID is a globally unique string referencing a subject and controlled through DID methods. A DID is stored on a verifiable data registry and a DID is managed by the DID subject or any entity that the subject has delegated authority to do so through a controller and it's housed in the DID document. Okay, so that's a lot of fancy-smancy technology and words and standards, so this also gets to a new set of questions, which I'm sure you're pondering. Why the hell would you want any of this? (laughs) What's the actual point? Why why are we talking about DIDs? And also, and I want to get to this a little bit later, how are people going to abuse this? Not if. No, just how. (laughs) Because we know... We've been in technology long enough. We know that any system that is designed will be abused. And the problem. Great philosopher once said everything is awful. Hashtag awesome new stickers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Speaking of which, if anybody's interested in chaos lever stickers, uh, we have them. And if you send me a DM with your address, I will mail you a couple stickers. So go ahead and do that. Um, but getting back to the actual point at hand, which is how awesome stickers are. No, wait, um, D.I.D.s. <laughs> As we've discussed pretty heavily on this show, there are a few technology giants out there that have amassed tremendous sway over our digital lives. Think about all the sites you've logged into using Google Or Facebook, And I'm not talking to you, Chris. I'm talking to the the people out there who may have done this. I know you're like a privacy nut and you wear your tinfoil hat everywhere and you would never deem to use uh, Google or or Facebook. But it is fairly common to use the Eh, login. Agree to disagree. You think you disagree that it's fairly common? I mean, Google like is a thing or whatever, but it's not like a big, big deal. Ah, No one's ever. I mean, only people in tech have
1: heard of Google, right? Like most people don't even pronounce it right. Google-ay?
0: Google. I was gonna I was gonna go with Goggle, yeah. Goggle. Okay, yes. Well, for those who want to log in with Goggle, it's super convenient, right? It means that you don't have to remember another username and password for another yet another website. You just say, Hey, yeah, I want to use my goggle credentials to log into this new website, and that's super convenient. Awesome. It also means that every site you log into with such a federated service has access to some amount of information that's stored in your Google account. Because usually when you log in with Google, it asks you if you want to grant permission and you just blindly click yes because I just want to use the website already. But that website's now getting a bunch of information about you. And maybe they will be honorable stewards of that data. (laughs) That's cute. (laughs) You know, the reason so many things are free is because you're the product, right? Right. Uh, Even worse, every site you log into Google or Facebook with is sending data back to those massive advertising companies. And make no mistake, Google and Facebook are advertising companies that happen to have other services. So every time you log into Canva let's say, because I logged into Canva today and I didn't use Google, but I could have. When you log into Canva, Google knows that you logged into Canva because Canva has to send an authentication request back to Google. So they not only know that you've logged into Canva, but how often and when and from where.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's very much a, uh, a Dr. Evil moment where Google's sitting there in its chair going, ooh, Ned logged into Canva, did he? Mm -hmm. Tell me more.
0: And I'm not saying that then I might start seeing ads for Adobe Photoshop online later that same day. But I'm not not saying that. So can you really trust Google or Facebook to do the right thing? I think. How do you
1: how do you transmit ironic stare dead into the (laughs) camera into an audio medium?
0: I believe you just did. (laughs) But hey, uh, you know, what can you do? You gotta log in somehow, and at least, you know, if you use one of these login services, one less password you have to remember, and I know you could use a password manager, Chris, but for those, of us, for those people who prefer convenience over security, I'm just gonna use the Google thing, right? So, what if instead you had your own identity that you managed yourself, that you could also use to log into all of these websites and use it for other digital things, And you were in control of what data was shared and how it was used. And no one else was tracking when it was used except you. That sounds nice. That does. Yeah. So there's this movement. And uh, it has some vague libertarian undertones. But we're just going to let that pass for now. It's called SSI or self-sovereign identity. And this is fun because if you search for it, I just want to... SSI also stands for Social Security Income, so you're going to get a lot of stuff about that, too. (laughs) A lot of beige. A lot of explainers on what to do with your Social Security Income. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that's the problem with acronyms, right? So look, search for a self-sovereign identity on DuckDuckGo because I think I've made it clear you probably shouldn't be using Google. (laughs) So, what, th- what this movement thinks is that you should be in control of your identity and the documents that govern your identity and the information that's associated with those documents. And the key here is the amount of information that you share, the way that you share it, and the manner in which that what you choose to share is verified. So, this is, DID is a way to implement what they're proposing with SSI. So, let's go with an actual, like, tangible example, right? Let's say I'm going to go try to buy a car. It's a terrible time to buy a car, but let's (laughs) say I am. The dealership is going to need a bunch of information from me in order for me to buy a car. I can't just rock up with my chest of gold bullion and be like, give me car. Now go away. I have ten sesterces. Yeah, not going to work. So... Most of the information they don't actually need, but hey, got to fill out forms, right? Yay. So they're going to want my driver's license uh, if I even want to test drive the car. Uh, But I think they need it regardless anyway for reasons. Um, And that driver's license also has, let's see, my date of birth on it, my street address, and my physical characteristics. So again, well, got a lot of information there. Um, They're also going to want my car insurance information, depending on the state you live in. But I'm in PA, so they will require that I have a car insurance policy before they'll let me drive off the lot with the car. Right. They're probably going to want my social security number for reasons, whatever those reasons might be. And if I'm financing the car, oh, boy, (laughs) they're going to want bank statements, credit reports, and the hell knows what else. We'll just take your whole life. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, that car dealership, assuming I've given them all this information, they now have a ridiculous amount of information about me. And most of it is useless to them. But it's going to go sit in a file ca- filing cabinet or a file share and collect dust for the next 40, 50, who knows how many years. Now, SSI posits that instead of all that, forget that noise, what we should have is I would have digitally signed documents that I can share when they request it. And not only that, but the request that they send me will also be digitally signed. So I can verify that it's coming from the dealership and not some shady third party. My response will be signed so they can verify that it's actually me responding to them. And I can filter what information they are allowed to see. So it limits what they, so it's limited to only what they actually need to know to process my application to buy the car, you know whatever it is. They can check the signature on my response and then I will include the documents they need, which are digitally signed by whatever authority issued them to me, you know my driver's license, etc. The DMV would digitally sign that in that case. They'll make sure everything's on the up and up based off of all these signatures and then I drive off the lot with my brand new Hyundai ionic 5. I mentioned this was a fantasy, right? Because you absolutely cannot get that car right now. <laughs> I've never even heard of that car. Is that like a big deal car? Uh, It was named like best electric car of 2022. Oh. Uh, now so- I get your little joke. Now <laughs> I get it. I wants it. I can't <laughs> has it. <laughs> it has to take a test drive. And I could hear the cackle in the email that was sent back. Basically saying, yeah, those don't stay on the lot long enough for a test drive. Okay. Anyway. So your driver's license, your financial docs, your bank account information, those could all be DIDs. And you have been delegated access by the institutions using your DID as authentication to access that information. And as part of the permission set for each of those DIDs, you have the ability to share that information with a third party. Now you probably won't have access to alter those DIDs because the bank or whoever is actually managing the subject in here, but you are in partial control because you've been delegated some access to alter those DIDs to grant other people permissions to look at a portion of them. How do you actually generate that your personal DID? Now, that would be up to you, and that is the self-sovereign part. And you don't have to have the same DID for everything, which gets back to the conversation of can one person or one subject have multiple DIDs. I would say I'd actually recommend against having a single one for everything. So for your bank, you might generate a DID and share it with them for banking stuff. uh, And that would only include the information that they need to know about you in order to open a bank account. So... We could talk about the contents of the DID document in some more detail later, but I think suffice to say, the other important thing is that your DID document shouldn't have any personal or confidential information in it, since it may reside on a public ledger. Instead, the subject referenced by the DID document would hold the relevant information somewhere else and then grant access to that. So this is all the theory. Right. And it's not just for personal finances. Big business is also very interested in using DIDs for things like IoT devices, inventory tracking, data sharing across organizations. But, and this is a big but, like Sir Mix-A-Lot would be interested size but, adoption of DIDs in a widespread manner is going to require two highly unlikely things to happen. And I think this will help us wrap up the conversation. Number one, people decide that they actually want to manage their own identity. Number two, institutions decide they want to change. Did you hear that? That
1: That's the sound (laughs) of, of 3000 people immediately turning off their podcast player.
0: (laughs) Is that what that sounds like? (laughs) Sounded like dead silence to me.
1: (sighs) Well, that's the downside of this electronic device world. Like, you know, when you were angry at a human being in like the 80s or 90s, and you could slam one of those big, heavy plastic phones. You heard it. They heard it. The neighbors heard it. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew. You know, you do that now and you're like, you got your cell phone and
0: you just push a button. And never call me again. Click. Oh, well, it, is, it is less uh, enjoyable. Less cathartic. Yeah, because slamming a cell phone, bad idea. Just... TLDR. Generally speaking. So in reference to point number one, there was this early dream in the Halcyon days of the World Wide Web that everyone would run a server out of their basement and we would have a million billion beautiful flowers blooming across the globe. But hosting a website is work. People, People have other shit to do. So along came Angel Fire and Geocities But even that was too much work. I don't wanna like design things. So along came Tumblr and Blogger and WordPress. All you have to do is typey, typey things in. But even that is too much. So we ended up with Facebook and user experiences that would have made a GeoCities site from 1996 blush. People are just busy. We're we have things to do, and we will farm out whatever isn't important to us. DIDs, not important. This is I mean,
1: people might scoff at this concept, but let's say you're buying a house, like even a bigger purchase than buying a car. Mm-hmm. You have dozens of identities that you are now providing to mortgage companies and what, five or six other companies The transfer documentation, the state, all these people have to be involved. You're giving them two dozen different versions of yourself. Yep. And it's so unimportant to us that
0: we'll send it over a fax machine. (laughs) (laughs) Not only that. Everyone's fine with that. People have tried to digitally transform realty for years and have gotten almost nowhere. There's a lot of embedded interests at both the government and the institutional level. And they do not care for the idea of being squeezed out of the process and no longer getting their share of the pie when a transaction closes. So title insurance and all that kind of other stuff that could potentially go away, it's not going away because that's actually important to someone. You and I, we buy a house maybe once, twice in our lives. We only have to go through that experience a couple times. It's painful when we're doing it, and then we're busy moving. Right. People who do this on a regular basis and have a vested interest have no interest in moving to this system. And you're going to find that pattern repeated across the entire spectrum of financial transactions. Right. Bob
1: from the title company is completely
0: fine with all of this. <laughs> yeah. He's like... Uh, Yeah, exactly. And he gets his cut every time a new deal closes. So why? Why would he want to do any of this? Right. This is a type of reform that has to come from the top down and be pushed at a governmental level to force companies to comply with new standards and new ways of doing things because there's no incentive for them to improve. And a lot of incentive, aka money, for them not to. Yeah, and that would be the only other thing is if... One of these giant companies
1: found a way to actually monetize. Whether that was actually
0: literally dollars and cents or whether it was reputational, it would have to be overwhelming. Yes. And they would be fighting the entire other portion of the industry while they were trying to build that business. Right. Financial institutions and governments just move very slowly. If you don't believe me, check out the job listings for COBOL programmers and see what crops up if you want to completely change the way we deal with identity you're going to have to get both of those organizational types to make those changes good luck (laughs) infinite (laughs) paper in a paperless world never heard it put better (sighs) so do i think dids are cool i do it's a cool standard it's cool possible technology I also think they're going to be offered as a service somehow, because no one wants to manage their own DIDs, even though that's the whole point, point. and I also also think most people will blithely ignore it until it provides some real tangible benefit, or it starts to cost them money not to do it. And even then, it's going to need to be a significant amount of money. Right. I do love how we seem to always
1: end on, on a shiny happy note. <laughs>
0: I really like to bring the room up. You know, Here's a great idea. That's never going to happen. Oh, oh. Now, that's not to say that there hasn't been progress. There is a whole identity foundation out there and it has some major players that have signed on for implementing this technology. You know, companies you may have heard of like Microsoft, they have a whole identity platform, a decentralized identity platform that they're working on. So, there is movement in this space. I think you'll see it implemented at the enterprise level for private companies long before it hits anything that's consumer or public public facing. Right. Which kind of makes sense because
1: whether you if you're working individually within your company, you can do those kinds of mandates. For some of the outlier or edge cases that don't have any policy that exists right now, like... IOT or managing Mm -hmm. your internal inventory that could happen because it's only company X and their supply chain that has to be responsible and responsive to these types of technologies. And then eventually everybody starts to get used to it inside of that company and every other company that's affected. Maybe there's a tipping point where it does trickle into the
0: public sphere. Mm -hmm. And because Microsoft has been pushing their subscriptions for a while and they want everybody to have sort of a Microsoft account. There is the possibility that they could support this separate identity factor and the more privacy or security minded folks would hop over to that identity platform instead of using a Microsoft account. So there's a possibility of adoption there. And then I think the other big one is electronic data interchange, AKA EDI, the way that companies exchange information together. Uh, This is a potential way to do that in a secure, verifiable fashion and, Companies get a little, a little squirrely about sharing information between each other, so I can see it as a as a boon for that as well. Right. Well, I think we did it. We covered DIDs. Shall we lighten round? Let's do it. All right.
1: Uber gets, like, all the way hacked. All the way. Social engineering for the... Are we... Win? Is this a win? Sure. An Uber employee was tricked into giving a hacker access to the Corpo VPN. Already bad. Mm. After this, the said hacker, who goes by the name of Teapot. Because security people are child, <laughs> Was able to access Uber's Thichotic secret server. This is also bad. Real bad. This was accomplished because the Uber employee who got hacked had the psychotic credentials in a script on his desktop in clear text. There also appears to have been no administrative monitoring set up on the Thychotic server, meaning that Teapot was able to take basically every password Uber had without anyone noticing. <laughs> oh, and Uber also didn't have any kind of MFA set up on admin accounts. Need it. A proud day for Uber security all around. Mm. Apparently, many Uber employees were watching this happen live as the files disappeared. See, the hacker had admin access to the Uber Slack channel and was talking to employees about what was happening in real time. <laughs> the company sent out a message asking all employees to log off of Slack, which, of course, they didn't do, because <laughs> why would you? Oh, God. This must seem hilarious to them. Why would you not stay logged on and watch the madness unfold? you got to watch the train
0: crash. Which that's why it's there. I know. Did you know they used to stage train crashes in the middle of the like the southwest? Like this was big yeah. monumental events and people died at some of these because when the trains hit each other, they exploded. <laughs> yeah. Let's Google the term shrapnel and then Google how heavy a train is. Hmm. Anyway, Google that later if that that or duck, duck it later if that's of interest to you. Risk five, getting a leg up on ARM? Huh? It's funny. Oh, I had another one that was even worse. So, thank me for not writing that one. The answer to the question is not if you ask the ARM executives. The CPU architecture and chip design known as ARM has been having quite the decade. The rise of smartphones and the need for low power, cheap and efficient chips has allowed ARM as an architecture and ARM as a company to explode in popularity. Not not content to rest on their laurels, ARM has tried multiple times to make headway in the desktop and server markets with middling success. What really started to turn the tide was the adoption of ARM CPUs by the cloud hyperscalers which in turn has led to the development of applications and platforms dedicated to running efficiently on ARM at enterprise scale. But just as ARM is eating Intel's lunch, a new contender appears on the horizon. Tis the mighty RISC-V architecture. Now, admittedly, RISC-V is still an emerging technology and not widely adopted by the general public. However, it does have some key things going for it. First, it is completely open source. Unlike ARM, reducing licensing costs for those who want to design and fab it. The instruction set architecture for RISC-V is intentionally simple with only 50 or so instructions with modular extensions that can be implemented depending on the use case. Implementers like NASA see this as a boon since you don't have to worry about the extended instruction set doing weird things if it doesn't exist. For their part, Arm claims that they aren't worried, with senior vice president and general manager of Arm's infra business saying, quote, we really don't see RISC-V as a significant competitor to us in the data center space right now or in the near future, end quote. Hmm, I feel like Intel may have said something similar a decade ago. What do actual artists think
1: about the AI image generation revolution? Greg Rutkowski weighs in. So, you know how all the AI generators out there feed off of publicly available images? And in order to create a new image, the AI needs prompts. One of the prompts you can give is an actual artist's name. So a prompt could be an armadillo in the desert by Pablo Picasso. And you would get a pretty reasonable many-eyed two-dimensional approximation. One of the most famous names in AI prompts is Greg Rutkowski. Now, he is a real modern-day artist who does a lot of realistic type work in sci-fi and fantasy-setting space. If you follow this topic, and I'm sure you do intensely, you'll see a lot of output based on prompts that carry Greg Rutkowski's name. And he seems to be a bit ambivalent on the subject. (laughs) Now, he has actually done talks on the Discord server for an AI platform called Midjourney about digital art. So he doesn't seem to be 100% against the concept. But recently, and perhaps in jest, he said this on Twitter, quote, well, I guess soon I won't be able to find my own work on the internet because it'll be flooded with AI stuff. He went on to say in a Forbes article, quote, as a digital artist or any artist in this era, we're focused on being recognized on the internet. Right now, when you type in my name, you see more work from the AI than work I have done myself, which is terrifying for me. How long till the AI floods my results and is indistinguishable from my works? I don't want to try to get into Greg's head here, but that doesn't seem like the kind of stuff you would say if you're super stoked about being in his position. So one thing I was reminded of when trolling through Greg's admittedly excellent Twitter feed was the art style impasto, which is when the paint is applied to the canvas so thickly it's got texture. This turns out to be a great word to add to your AI prompts, even the Picasso one from earlier, because the AI does a really good job with it. It makes the images pop. Oh, my God, I'm part of
0: the problem, aren't I? You sure are. <laughs> oh, and speaking of which, I did an armadillo in the desert by Greg Rutkowski, and it it's a pretty cool rendering. So, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Time for the crypto blame game. Yeah, every good story needs a villain. Actually, even stupid stories need villains. And the farcical tragedy of the crypto winter has found their proverbial evil queen or king. Look, whatever. Metaphors are hard. Do Kwon, the CEO and founder of Terraform Labs, has a warrant out for his arrest in South Korea. The warrant charges Do Kwon and five others violated the country's capital markets law. For those who don't follow the crypto space... Terraform Labs was responsible for the creation of multiple cryptocurrencies, including the so-called stablecoin TerraUSD. As implied by the name, the value of TerraUSD was supposed to track the value of the U.S. dollar directly, which is what makes it a stablecoin. LunaCoin was another cryptocurrency created by Terraform Labs, which was not pegged to a fiat currency, but it was meant to balance the value of TerraUSD. The combined value of Terra USD and Luna peaked at $60 billion and then came crashing down to essentially zero as confidence in the currencies cratered over allegations of being over leveraged and investors pulling large sums out of both Luna and Terra USD currencies. Now, since money is imaginary and depends on the confidence of those using it, when that confidence evaporates, So does the theoretical value of the currency. Governments and financial institutions have protections in place to prevent this kind of panic and run on fiat currency. And crypto has been trying to do the same through Rube Goldberg machinations. Such a duct tape and chicken wire setup was doomed to fail. And fail in new and interesting ways. Now the real question is whether Do Kwon and his gang of cohorts are culpable... For investor losses that's for the courts to decide and i'm not one to editorialize but <laughs> my kidding oh find him into oblivion and make him personally apologize to every person he affected
1: it might take a while but i feel like it would be worth it
0: mm-hmm.
1: adobe panic buys figma for 20 billion dollars public rolls eyes and adobe's stock tanks figma a company that until recently I had never heard of, but apparently is a collaboration platform for engineers and designers to collaborate in real time, think Illustrator, but browser-based, was purchased by Adobe. Figma was valued at $10 billion last June. Adobe decided that enough was enough of it being an independent company and decided to buy Figma for double that. This has been a long time coming as Figma has rejected several Adobe offers in the past. As they got increasingly desperate and having nothing comparable in their portfolio and seeing their Creative Cloud subscription numbers continue to slide, Adobe finally went all in. Investors were not at all pleased as the Adobe stock price went down 17% on the news. Time will tell if this ends up being a good thing for Adobe, but most people think it was dumb, especially current Figma subscribers who are not at all looking forward to Adobe messing with the product and jacking up the price. Both realistic possibilities. But it's a song we've sung before. Massive Company buys superior products because they know they can't compete. Massive Company then proceeds to ruin the superior product while milking all the previously satisfied
0: customers for all they got. Sigh. You do know, remember we were talking about macromedia? Yeah. Yeah, the same exact thing happened. Guess who bought macromedia? Adobe. And there we have it. <laughs> Ethereum merge is complete. Crypto bros are underwhelmed. I know. I know. Another crypto story. And I am I'm so sorry. It's been a light news week, I guess. Something about a deposed monarch. I don't know. I struggle to care. So cryptocurrency it is. As we alluded to a few weeks ago, the Ethereum merge was nigh, and now it has come to pass. The two have become one, that being Beacon and Ethereum, now and forever, until the great blockchain in the sky calls us all home. Amen. First, the good. The move from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake will reduce the environmental impact of Ethereum by 99.5%. (laughs) for a completely useless Ponzi scheme not actively working to destroy the planet is... good? Yeah, we'll go with good. Well done, Buterin and your compatriots. Now, in theory, the new processing model will lower transaction costs and speed up the Ethereum chain. While that should be a net good for anyone using Ether and the other functions that are built uh, built upon its blockchain technology... So far, investors are unimpressed, with the value of Ether falling to just over $1,300 as of this writing. That is a six-month low after peaking in April at a high of $3,500. The merge may be done, but crypto winter is far from over. Not least because
1: other crypto bros are trying to fork Ethereum back to a proof of work because gosh darn it they overpaid for those GPUs and they're going to continue to use them
0: (laughs) instead of doing something productive right yeah god forfend you know it's you have to assume anybody who has a mining rig now is just going to go mine bitcoin instead it's not like it's actually going to decrease the environmental impact it's just going to shift to a different cryptocurrency which just means that we have to shift our spite and you know what we can do that I could do that with zero environmental impact (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you should go find a tandem bike, melt it down for scrap, and know that you've done a service to the world. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer, respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which you really shouldn't. What you should do is uh, let me know if you want some Chaos Lover stickers and I will deliver them to you. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now.
1: Tandem bikes. What a, what a pull that was. They're garbage. There I said it. I saw last week, I forget where I was driving, but I saw one person on a tandem bike. And it might have been the saddest thing I've ever seen.